today's episode, U.S. Marine Corps Combined Action Platoons in Vietnam. Hello, and welcome to Military History Inside Out, brought to you by War Scholar and located at warscholar.org. We talk about military history from ancient times to modern and everything in between. I'm Chris Alvarez, and thank you for listening. I'm speaking with Ted N. Easterling, author of War in the Villages, the U.S. Marine Corps Combined Action Platoons in the Vietnam War, to be published April 13, 2021, by University of North Texas Press. Uh, thank you very much for speaking with me. It's a pleasure. Happy to be here. So first, so you were uh, a Marine in, Viet in the Vietnam War, um, but what prompted yes, you to write this book? Well, uh, I, I, taking that into consideration, I was in the Marines in Vietnam, and, and uh, I was always somewhat bitter because of the way the war ended, and uh, uh, just about the war generally. But uh, when I started my studies, my my formal history studies, I became, I've, I've always enjoyed military history, and uh, I like the history of the Vietnam War. I studied that, and I studied a a good amount of uh, counterinsurgency theory and uh, history. And uh, I, I read a lot about the CAP platoons, the combined action platoons, and uh, they seemed like a good counterinsurgency idea, a good concept. And I saw mixed reviews on them. Uh, a lot of people said they liked them and they were good, but they never really mentioned specifically why they thought they were good or bad as a counterinsurgency technique. Uh, at the same time, there was criticism of them as well because people were saying that, uh, for instance, they were too small, they were too isolated, and uh, they were too vulnerable to attack as a result of that. And also, I remember one criticism was that they were taking manpower away from the larger units where they could have been used on the search and destroy missions. And I thought that was really more as if they were wanting to throw good money after bad. But so I, I thought, well, I wanted to take a look at the combined action platoons to see whether or not they were a good counterinsurgency concept. And so I, I uh, looked at some of the counterinsurgency theory especially that which was popular at the time and which was and and I used some concepts from uh, David Galula and uh, from Robert Thompson. And uh, I uh, I listed about seven of those, I think. And and I used those to evaluate the combined action platoon uh, performance in Vietnam. And um, I see that, uh, so you have your Ph.D. in history, but do you want to say a few words about your military career? Again, I uh, I served in Vietnam as a, as a Marine enlisted man, and I was a combat engineer, and we were uh, frequently uh, uh, attached to infantry units for their demolition work, uh, and uh, I, I did a lot of that. So I was on a lot of search and destroy operations, and... Uh, I mean, even at that time, I was there from 66 to 67, and I remember that uh, even at that time, I remember thinking when I was, uh, well, near the end of my tour, but I was thinking, this really isn't working very well. And, and I thought at the time that a, a good corporal would tell you that it's not working very well. Mm -hmm. And uh, at the same time, too, I, I spent a lot of time at uh, 
Contien, uh, which was a, a fixed position along the DMZ, part of what they call Leatherneck Square. But, uh, and, and that was, uh, that was, that was a shooting gallery. I mean, we sat there and absorbed the punishment of the VC artillery, uh, pardon me, the MVA artillery from dug in positions in the, uh, uh, DMZ and, and in North Vietnam itself. I, and it, it all looked, uh, as if it wasn't working very well at the time. So yeah, those were my thoughts mm-hmm. at the time. And did you get out of the Marine Corps? Um, or did you, um, how many years were you in? I'm just curious what led to your, your PhD. Oh, three years. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, yeah, I didn't start my PhD until I was, uh, I think I was 51 years old. Hmm. I always loved history, but, uh, you know, my life was an odyssey of sorts. And I, I finally decided I, I, uh, had a job, uh, teaching in prison for the state of Ohio. And I, uh, I had tuition reimbursement. And at the time I was reading about two hours of history a night on my own. As I said, I've always loved history. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, well, I'll, I'll start working on a master's, which would increase my pay level. Uh, and I got my master's. I was teaching under a, a, a very good advisor, Dr. Walter Hickson at the University of Akron. I had some excellent uh, instructors and uh, I kept working on my Ph.D. and uh, eventually I got it. And, and my uh, dissertation had to do with the combined action platoons. And, and that then that led to my book. Mm-hmm. Okay, so so let's talk about the book then. Um, how do you, do you break it down chronologically, or do you look at uh, certain themes, or what's your approach? I look at it chronologically, but I was looking at uh, I was looking at the combined action platoons and their performance initially, and as I said, according to the uh, counterinsurgency tasks I, I developed by which to judge them, and then uh, I I came to see that the strategy of the war was very very important in that uh, there was a conflict uh, as to what strategies should be used in the war. Uh, General Westmoreland had chosen a strategy of attrition for the, for the war, and the primary tactic within that strategy was the search and destroy mission. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was some controversy regarding that, uh, even from the beginning, even prior to Westmoreland's uh, beginning the use of that strategy and those tactics, but wasn't uh, effective in, in uh, stopping it. But uh, there was criticism of it. And Johnson, of course, President Johnson supported him in that in the pursuit of that strategy. But in the Marine Corps, there was a lot of uh, criticism of that strategy. And one of the primary spokesmen for the people who opposed that strategy was General uh, Krulak, Victor Krulak. Uh, and he, he was a brilliant man, and uh, he, uh, uh, he had studied counterinsurgency extensively, and uh, he had been, been uh, an advisor to McNamara beginning in 1962 for special advisor for counterinsurgency and special activities, and he, would, he discussed these with both uh, McNamara and uh, Kennedy, and he, he did a lot of research on counterinsurgency. He was very interested in it because I think he saw that not only it, this was something with which the Marine Corps in the United States was going to be involved in the near future, and also because uh, 
it looked as if we might become involved in in uh, uh, Vietnam. So it was uh, he he was preparing for that possibility. Mm-hmm. He spoke with uh, Robert Thompson, who was, or pardon me, yeah, Robert Thompson, who was who was influential in his thinking. Thompson told him that uh, uh, the trust of the people was primary, and that uh, protection was the best thing and the most necessary thing for for uh, the counterinsurgents to uh, give the people. And he said, after that, various things can follow: health, education, uh, other forms of welfare, but but the protection was the primary uh, consideration. Uh, so Krulak proposed a different strategy, a strategy different from that of uh, attrition, certainly. And he was very critical of, of the strategy of attrition, but he, he proposed that uh, they use an enclave strategy, which is uh, similar to an oil spot strategy and counterinsurgency. That is, they take control of a, an area and then expand out from that area, driving the insurgents away from the area and uh, expanding it in that manner. Mm-hmm. And it was an enclave strategy because it was done on the coast, the northeastern portion of uh, of South Vietnam, from just a short distance below the DMZ where Fubai was located, then continuing on to Da Nang to the south of that, and then Chul- Chulai to the south of that. His thinking was that if that area could be controlled and if the insurgents could be kept away from that, and this was very important because, as I said, Krulak was a was really a very a very good student of counterinsurgency. He saw that this was the weakness of the uh, National Liberation Front main force units and the uh, NVA, the North Vietnamese Army. Uh, this portion of the coast of North Eastern South Vietnam was uh, an area that was only approximately 7,000 square kilometers. Mm-hmm. And that was in the entire area of I Corps, where the Marine Corps was in control, the five north northern provinces of uh, South Vietnam, was approximately 27,000 square kilometers. And again, that enclave portion was about 7,000 square kilometers, but within that uh, 7,000 square kilometers, that, that strip of land along the uh, the coast, approximately 450,000 tons of rice were produced. And the majority of the population lived in that area. And also vast amounts of uh, salt and fish were produced in that area. Then the interior, apart, away from that 7,000 square kilometer area, that which then, as I said, would be the enclave protected. Mm-hmm. Uh, the area to, in the interior was very mountainous, and it, had, it was heavily vegetated, and there was uh, little food grown there, and there were few people living there. Uh, but this was the area where the North Vietnamese regular, well, North Vietnamese troops and uh, the uh, uh, National Liber- Liberation Front guerrillas hid themselves. They hid in these areas. So they had very little food. They couldn't grow any food in there. So they got their food from that the uh, the coastal area yeah. where the majority was grown. And their link to that, the important link, really the, the vital link, was the guerrilla movement. And uh, Krulak saw that, and he thought if that link could be broken, if they could be, if the uh, guerrillas could be kept away from the people, away from the villages, they would be kept away from. Uh, 
the food that was necessary to feed their soldiers. Mm -hmm. They would be kept away from recruits for the National Liberation Front main, main units, main force units. They'd be kept away from uh, other supplies they needed from the, the, the people, uh, including tax money, which they extorted from the people. Mm -hmm. uh, and they'd also be kept away from uh, intelligence that the people could provide. So without these things, you know, Krulak was, Krulak said, without these things first, without the food, they'd starve. Unless, well, they'd, they'd starve without the food. They would have fewer troops as a result of not having any recruits, fewer supplies, less of the tax money, and, uh, and, and less intelligence. So uh, this was the vital link that he wanted to, uh, to sever. But, uh, and that was, that's an important point that I make in my book. I talk about insurgencies, and any insurgency really has, can't exist without the support of the population. Mm -hmm. And right. this, it wasn't any different, it wasn't any different in, in South Vietnam. It had to have the support of the population, a majority of the population. First, guerrillas need to hide among the people. Uh, sometimes they're, and, and, to, and to make sure that the people don't expose them to the government forces, mm -hmm. they need to, uh, uh, and then they hide in remote areas away from the, from the government forces. And in those areas, uh, they, again, they depend on the people not to reveal their, their sources. And they need, then they need, they need the will, the goodwill of the people because, uh, and the support of the people because they need those recruits. They need that food. They need the supplies and, uh, they need the intelligence. Mm -hmm. And without those things, an insurgency can't exist. And, and Krulak knew that. He was saying, if those things could be taken away from the, uh, the main force units in the interior of, uh, I Corps, then the guerrillas would be, the, well, the, the NVA and the NLF could bring uh, food down the trails from North Vietnam, but this would mean they'd have fewer, it would be very difficult, of course, and it would mean they'd have uh, fewer military supplies. Mm -hmm. I'm speaking with Ted N. Easterling, author of War in the Villages. You can find more information about the book at the University of North Texas Press website. If you like this episode of Military History Inside Out so far, please tap the like button and bullseye the subscribe button. If you want more interviews with military historians or to get daily history book suggestions, check out warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com. If you want interviews with writers and creative people or daily book suggestions in sci-fi, fantasy, horror, film history, gaming, and more, check out fullcontactnerd.com and my podcast, Full Contact Nerd Interviews. If you want to hear interviews with space scientists, space historians, and technology experts, or get daily space and science book suggestions, check out technologyandspace.com and my podcast, Technology and Space. All of my social media links are listed at the end of this episode. Now back to the podcast. Hey, Krulak, Krulak made a really interesting point. You know, uh, well, first... Uh, Westmoreland had begun his his uh, his uh, strategy of attrition. Mm -hmm. He'd begun he'd begun his uh, search and destroy missions, as I said, as a central tactic for those. Krulak made a strategic appraisal in June of 1965, and in that he made known what I said previously about his desire to have a 
uh, an enclave strategy for uh, uh, I-Corps. And at the same time, he was saying they should, if they did that in I-Corps and they did it in the Mekong Delta, they, they'd be eliminating almost all the food that for the uh, guerrilla forces mm-hmm. and the main for, well, and for the main force units. So that was very important. He made one really interesting statement though in that strategic appraisal, I thought he said the NLF National Liberation Front and the NVA had had one basic tactic and they used that to defeat the French and they were they used it to defeat the uh, South Vietnamese Army and they were using it against the Americans and that was, they would find an isolated position. They would uh, carefully plan. They always like careful plan. The NVA and the uh, NLF were always, always uh, very much in favor of a lot of, of sand table preparation, things of that sort. But they would select an isolated position. They would uh, carefully plan an attack on it. And then prior to their attack on it, they would look at the, uh, the routes where where uh, reinforcements might come mm-hmm. to reinforce uh, the unit being attacked, and they would place ambushes along the, and that uh, the the damage done in the attack on the isolated position was important, but the most uh, important aspect of the of the battle was the attack, the ambush attack on the reinforced of troops because this was calculated to do more damage. Mm-hmm. Uh, he said this was the one tactic they used to defeat the French, the primary tactic is to defeat the French. They, were used, they used it to defeat the, uh, they used it for many defeats they inflicted on the, the uh, Arvin troops. Mm-hmm. He said they were using a variation of this to attack the search and destroy operations. They would, they would lure the search and destroy, they watched how the search and destroy operations moved as they went on these operations. And they, they started to use sniper fire and small attacks to see how they'd react to them. And in this way, they could draw American troops into pre-planned ambush sites. And this is why so often in, in the Vietnam War, we see units going into pre-planned ambushes. They could lure people into these areas. And then, then they would, they would do as they'd done in, in the, with the uh, isolated position situations, they'd, They'd, they would affect the ambush, and then they'd wait for the uh, other troops to come to help the uh, ambush troops, and they would then in turn ambush them. Hmm. So I thought that was interesting. But uh, Krulak proposed this uh, alternative uh, strategy, and there was this constant conflict during the war between the two strategies for the ground war, that of attrition and that of the uh, enclave strategy that uh, that the, that a number of prominent Marine Corps ger, uh, generals proposed, and for which Krulak was the uh, primary spokesman. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about what uh, the caps were. Did, uh, did these Marines lived in the villages? Is that correct? Yes, it did. And that's uh, that was. I think that's part of the attraction of the the the, the cap idea. When people read about these, I mean. It, there, there's an element of romance to them, and and it's it's such a uh, an adventurous concept. You know, they, these uh, Marines live with. There there was a squad of Marines with the Marines and uh, popular forces militiamen, South Vietnamese popular forces militiamen, lived together, and they lived in the villages, and they defended the villages against the NLF and the NBA. 
and then they they help the people during the day and fight the guerrillas during the night mm -hmm. and uh, that, that's a that's as i said that's a that's an intriguing concept you know and that's that's what i had uh i was, that led me to uh question as i said how effective it was i mean it certainly mm -hmm. sounds interesting but did it work and how big were the um how how big of an element was living in each of these villages? Well, the, the villages could could be ten square miles in size, and they could be they could have as many as five thousand people, and that varied. They could be larger, and when within that area, they had a uh, a squad of marines. Now this is T O and E. This is uh, they had fourteen men, fourteen marines, which was a, a a regular marine squad at the time, which was comprised of three fire teams of four men each with a, and again, uh, officially it was a corporal as the fire team leader. And then they had the squad leader who was supposed to be a sergeant. It could be a sergeant or a corporal. And then they had a man called the, well, the assistant squad leader carried an M79 grenade launcher. So there were 14 men. And for purposes of uh, the caps, they had a, a uh, a Navy corpsman, a medic assigned to the squad. Then the uh, popular forces component was approximately 30 to 35 men, and a leader was a sergeant, and uh, the remainder of the men were uh, privates. Mm -hmm. So you had an, a, a force of, uh, as I said, at, at maximum strength, it was about 45 men. And but more often it was much fewer, many fewer than that. It would you, you could have uh, as few as six Marines, and uh, maybe fifteen or twenty uh, popular forces troopers. And the the popular forces were Vietnamese, correct? Yes, they were. They mm -hmm. were uh, militiamen from the village, and uh, when they conceived the idea of combining the Marines with the popular forces. I think there was some question on the part of some people as to whether or not they should do it because the popular forces were generally seen as uh, uh, poorly trained, poorly led, poorly armed, poorly paid, and one of the uh, least competent, uh, a generally incompetent uh, South Vietnamese military force. So there was that. They they were not thought of as a military force. Mm-hmm. And the Marines, though, did they have control over the popular forces, or they just worked alongside them? Uh, there was, there was. They had, uh, they worked on a on a basis where they were uh, equal, except in times of combat. In combat, the Marines were in charge, mm -hmm. and it was always a delicate balance because of the uh, sensitivity of the the, the uh, popular forces to being controlled by the Marines, but they. Uh, they generally worked it out, and this was a lot of this was due to the fact that that when they conceived this idea of the uh, combined action platoons, the uh, they made sure that the Marines chosen were were carefully chosen. They were men who were uh, had a desire to work with the Vietnamese and to help them, and uh, also they put them through a, a the Marines through a training period. Often they put them through a training period where they they'd uh, understand the uh, culture of the uh, Vietnamese and uh, understand the popular forces 
and and they wanted men who were uh, sensitive to the needs of the Vietnamese and who would had a, had a commitment to help them. Mm -hmm. It seemed like this was partially a volunteer thing then, maybe not it always. Was, well, it, it, yeah, at, at best it was it was volunteer. There were instances uh, where people did not volunteer, uh, but they were sent. And and part of this was because. Uh, they had to get the Marines for the cap units for these combined action platoons from the infantry for the most part. So they would request uh, the infantry units to send men for the cap. They said, we want, we want your best men. We want men who are proven in combat, men who have good leadership skills and uh, who won't be a disciplinary problem, things of this sort. Mm -hmm. But this, uh, course created a conflict of interest in the infantry companies because they wanted to keep their best people so very often they sent people who were discipline problems or or they just sent people randomly to the uh, combined action platoon hmm. one way the com combined action platoons could control this though was that they were able to have a person dismissed sent away from the combined action platoons if uh if the man created a problem in the uh, in the unit and mm -hmm. and this was not only because they wanted the units to, to work well but it was a it was a question of survival for the for the uh, Marines and the combined action platoons because uh, if they didn't work well with the people then it could create a real problem it could alienate a lot of the people from the uh, uh, combined action platoons and uh, it could lead to uh, it could lead to their being killed. Did they have, were they linked pretty well to uh, combat support and also just to general support for supplies and that sort of thing? Well, initially they, they weren't. They were made a part of the battalion which was closest to them. And this was a, a poor organizational structure. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, initially, though, I, and in my book, I make the point that it, it looks as if it was just a, a matter of uh, the easiest way to create the organization than uh, anything that was thought out too clearly. But so the caps were made part of the infantry battalion, which was closest to them. And they, the, the battalion was responsible for keeping this cap supplied and for providing equipment for them in some instances. But th this caused problems because the supplies for the caps and the equipment for the caps had to be taken from the uh, infantry battalions. And uh, this, caused a lack of supplies in some instances, but it was even worse when that particular infantry battalion might move and the uh, mm -hmm. uh, the caps suddenly found that their 50 caliber machine gun, their, uh, their radio and uh, some other equipment was taken from them and they were without it for a period of time. Mm -hmm. The battalions, what, um, what, were they on fixed bases or did they have temporary locations how were the these battalions originally situated well they were they had missions of their own they were supposed to accomplish and that was part of the uh, conflict there because at at times a battalion would move and uh another battalion might move in but at times a battalion would move and uh the uh, the caps were dependent on the battalions not only for the equipment and supplies but there was also uh, the battalions were responsible for sending relief forces 
to help the Caps if the Caps were attacked by a large force. Mm-hmm. And uh, so periodically the uh, the battalion would move and uh, all of a sudden the battalion would get a, a, a call that uh, the Caps needed help and they were, of course, were involved in whatever mission they were assigned and and they had to try to make the best they could of it and, and so did the Caps, of course. So that was an awkward situation as well. The battalions, uh, the artillery support for the battalions was uh, had to help the caps also. Mm-hmm. And this wasn't usually a problem because the artillery didn't move that much. But there were there were times there could have been times there were, I think, when when the caps needed artillery support and the artillery was being used for uh, missions in support of the battalion. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was an awkward arrangement. And did you say it, it eventually changed? Yeah, it did. Uh Really, what happened was that as they saw the worth of the caps... And around what year are we talking when they started to shift? 1967, really. In 67, uh, they decided the Marine Corps had tried to use various ways to have the... Well, initially, they wanted the Arvin, the South Vietnamese Army, uh, to work on pacification within these enclaves and they wanted the uh, popular forces and the regional forces to do that also. But uh, a problem with that was that they simply didn't do a very good job. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the Arvin was, uh, the army of Vietnam didn't treat the people very well. And as I mentioned in there, in the book, uh, they often acted toward the people as if the people were a subjected population. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they didn't like they they didn't like working with the people particularly, and they didn't work very well with them. And uh, it, the PFs were too poorly trained and uh, too poorly equipped to really do a good job of uh, defending these villages within the enclaves. So in uh, the Marine Corps tried various ways to have the uh, the Arvin and the and the PFs worked to pacify the villages within the enclaves, but it didn't work well. So they were looking for another way to do that. In the meantime, the combined action platoons had been initiated in uh, Hubei in uh, uh, approximately July of uh, 1965. And really they began operating in August of 1965. And initially their, their mission was the defense of the villages, and uh, uh, they really didn't have a uh, they didn't have a mission of, of pacifying the villages, of, mm-hmm. of helping the villages, things of this sort. Mm-hmm. That wasn't their official mission. But then, as the uh, uh, whereas as I said, the Marine Corps tried using the Arvin and the PFs, and they intended to have them uh, protect and pacify these villages within the enclaves. So the Marine Corps started to see, as I said, they. They, they initiated the caps with the intention of having them defend the villages against the guerrillas. There were some uh, pacification uh, missions given to these people, but they weren't official missions, really. They were doing some pacification. But then in uh, 1966, General Wall, who was the commander in, in I-Corps, requested Lieutenant Colonel Corson, William Corson, come to... Uh, South Vietnam and to uh, be put in charge of the 3rd Tank Battalion in uh, 
which was close to uh, Da Nang. And Corson began a uh, pacification experiment called a Fong Bach experiment. And uh, my thinking is that Walt asked him to come there and that they were really thinking that uh, at that time that they needed a way for the Marine Corps to pacify the enclaves themselves. They thought they couldn't depend on the Arvin and they couldn't depend on the PFs and the Marine Corps would have to do it on its own. On its own. Mm-hmm. Now, Corson was a one of the, at least one of the foremost experts on insurgency in the Marine Corps. He'd had a, uh, uh, a career. He'd been an enlisted man in World War II and he, he uh, re-enlisted after, uh, after, he atta- after the war, he, he got a degree in math from the University of Chicago. And uh, he re-enlisted the Marine Corps and, and started to uh, work with the CIA. He was an officer in the Marine Corps, but a lot of his work was done with the CIA. And uh, he was working with insurgents. He said, he said that was his career, working with insurgencies in Asia. And uh, he spoke fluent Chinese. And he came to Vietnam, as I said, in uh, September of 1966 to command the tank battalion, began this path, this this pacification uh, experiment at Phong Bac. And he said that there he was uh, trying to develop the uh, a way of pacification for the, uh, that, that could be used within the capital platoon. So I think the thinking on the part of Walt and uh, Krulak and General Nickerson was that uh, they wanted uh, Corson to come and take over command of the capital platoon. Now that became more of a that that became more of a likelihood, or it, uh, after uh, Corson completed this experiment at Phong Bac, and then he was given command of the uh, cap platoons. He was told he was going to be working, use them for pacification in the enclaves in the villages of South Vietnam. Hmm. I'm speaking with Ted N. Easterling, author of War in the Villages. You can find more information about the book at the University of North Texas Press website. If you like this episode of Military History Inside Out so far, please tap the like button and bullseye the subscribe button. If you want more interviews with military historians or to get daily history book suggestions, check out warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com. If you want interviews with writers and creative people or daily book suggestions in sci-fi, fantasy, horror, film history, gaming, and more, check out fullcontactnerd.com and my podcast, Full Contact Nerd Interviews. If you want to hear interviews with space scientists, space historians, and technology experts, or get daily space and science book suggestions, check out technologyandspace.com and my podcast, Technology and Space. All of my social media links are listed at the end of this episode. Now back to the podcast. So, um, how dangerous a duty was was it being in the cap? It was dangerous, and and uh, they, uh, as I said, officially they only took volunteers, and uh, it could be very dangerous. They worked, as I said, in small units in, in large areas. The VC. The uh, National Liberation Front guerrillas were blocked from the villages, as I said, where they got those supplies they needed for their insurgency, mm-hmm. and uh, they tried to uh, they tried to kill them as often as they could. Mm-hmm. The combined actual platoons were 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 good, though they worked because they combined 
the uh, Marines and their professionalism, their fighting ability, and uh, with and their idealism, their their enthusiasm, with the uh, knowledge of the of the Popular Forces troops. The Popular Forces troops knew the area. They knew many of the people who had uh, relatives among the VC. Uh, they knew many of the families. They related to many of the families in the uh, in the area. And of course, they'd lived in the area all their lives. They they, they knew the fighting techniques of the uh, NLF. So uh, having the two together was was an excellent, and and having them work together well is uh, very good for as a pacification technique. Mm-hmm. Uh, it could be dangerous, but they had an extensive intelligence network. That was one of the the tasks they needed to set up. Mm-hmm. And uh, very often that until they, in one way, the way they achieved their intelligence network, one of the primary ways was was simply by defending the villages from the National Liberation Front guerrillas, mm-hmm. uh, which which kept the the threat of uh, uh, any sort of retribution away, and uh, also by treating the people well, just treating them in a humane manner. That was that was uh, an important part of their success. Uh, and also, they took nothing from the people. Mm-hmm. And that's significant because the National Liberation Front wanted food, supplies, tax money, mm-hmm. recruits. So all those things were t- being taken from the people and being taken in increasing numbers and amounts as the war continued. And, of course, initially the NLF wanted to say, wanted to convince the people that they needed to do this because the liberation of their country was so important. Some people did it out of loyalty to the to the uh, NLF, but others did it because uh, uh, they were fearful of what the NLF would do if they didn't give them to them. Mm-hmm. So when when they didn't have to, and, and the people themselves were always on the verge of starvation. I mean, the war was devastating to them, and they've been living in uh, circumstances of war since, uh, well, at least you could say that at least since uh, 1946, when the French and the Chinese War started, mm-hmm. and probably before that, so they were they were in terrible circumstances in the villages, and so this intelligence network, treating the people well, which encouraged the intelligence network, helped to protect the the people in the combined action platoons. But it was still dangerous. Their 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 primary tactics in the uh, Combined action platoons were the am- were an ambush and and patrols, and they did this at night almost exclusively. There was a daytime patrol they usually did in the caps, but this was uh, this was more to just show the flag, so to speak. They wanted to show the villagers they were there mm-hmm. and talk with them and get to and, and 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 have good relationships with the people. And but then at night they went out and they they set their night ambushes and. Mm-hmm. And and this was really, this was very effective against the, the NLF because the guerrillas were not used to this at all. The popular forces, prior to the caps getting there, the popular forces didn't set out ambushes. Hmm. So the NLF was uh, used to being able to just come into the villages, gather the tax money, get the food, get the supplies, give their propaganda lectures, and uh, without any interference. And now they, they, they could risk the uh, possibility of running into a, a devastating ambush in the night. They never knew where they might be. And they, there was a, this 
this web of ambushes around the village that could uh, uh, could could uh, annihilate a a uh, in and out patrol. Mm-hmm. So it was dangerous in the camps, and periodically the NLF would attack the compound of the caps. Now the caps, for a good period of time in the war, the caps would establish a compound close to the in the village and and close to the edge of the village, possibly with and they'd find an an old uh, structure, a home, or a, an abandoned French fort of some not not very large. But they'd uh, they'd fortify this with uh, barbed wire, sandbags, weaponry, things of this sort, and uh, their men would stay in this. Some of the men would stay in this, and uh, then they'd send their night patrols out, and their day patrol their day patrol would go out from that location. Their night patrols would go out to set their ambushes, and then in the daytime they'd come back in, uh, and then they'd work on the compound to improve their defenses. But the compounds were never very strong. As I said, you're, you're talking about the Marines in there, possibly 10, 10 men, 12 men, and maybe some PFs. Mm-hmm. But the PFs usually went back to their homes. So, and at night you might have, so you might have 15 men, 20 men maximum. In this. So, and the the, national, the the guerrillas and even the NVA periodically would mass to uh, attack one of these compounds. In those situations, there were some really desperate fights, and, and a number of the caps were overrun. Mm. And, and the, as I said previously, one of the ways they tried to alleviate this situation was by having relief forces of Marine infantry close by who could then come to come to the aid of the uh, caps if they were attacked. Mm-hmm. But a lot, a number of the caps were overrun so it was dangerous duty and they 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 could die in it pretty easily hmm. so let me ask you about the um how you did the research for the book what would you collect where'd you get your information from uh, i got a lot of it from quantico Ray research center quantico uh they were really helpful i got i got about uh cds of uh oral interviews cap uh, interviews with with cap uh, uh members and these were interviews done by the historical research uh, program of the Marine Corps. They were done during the war in Vietnam. I listened to those, and, and a lot of my research for, was from there. I, I did a lot of reading about the the CAP program, and, and I talked with some veterans also. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, what uh, In your research, what did you come across that most surprised you? I think one of the... One of the uh, most important things I saw here that I found in my research was that the caps evolved. As I said, initially they were supposed to be defense forces. And it, it, it was almost, well, there, there, I'll mention that in a minute, but there, there, there were precedents in, in Marine Corps history and in institutional memory, if you will, for these units. But they put together a squad of Marines and a squad of uh, of uh popular forces troops and uh for the defense and they they found a way to make them work and and they worked because they had that common purpose they wanted to protect the people of the village uh some of a lot of the marines in in these in these squads came to see the people in the village as family Uh, you know they 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 were very protective of them they and then corson mentioned one time that 
it was just the basic idea of fairness that 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 uh, disturbed them that these people were being so mistreated by the NLF, mm. not only NLF but the Vietnamese government, the Arvin troops, and uh, even some of the American troops who came through there. They wanted mm. to protect these people. In my in my research, though, I saw initially these these uh, platoons were supposed to be for defense. And it, it was a good idea for that. But then, as I mentioned, when the Marine Corps found that they could not depend on the uh, Arvin and the PFs to pacify the villages within the enclave, the enclaves, you know, the, the regular Marine units, the infantry units pushed as many, pushed the large units away from the enclave. And they uh, pushed some of the guerrillas out, but there were still guerrillas among the population. And uh, there were guerrillas who could still hide within areas of the enclave. So these villages had to be protected. So when the uh, Marine Corps decided to do the pacification on its own, the uh, the real mission and the real ability of the CAFs to accomplish that mission came into play. They were the means by which the uh, enclaves were to be pacified. And they were very effective in what they did they they kept the guerrillas away from the villages they were their their uh security was was very good mm -hmm. uh also they were able to keep the guerrillas from getting the the food the the supplies the intelligence and the recruits from the villages mm -hmm. so this had a, a this had a very large negative effect on the guerrilla movement mm -hmm. it, it, really harmed them as i said that would that's that's the vital that's the that's the uh jugular vein of the uh, uh of any insurgency it has to have that connection with the population they did not have that anymore when the caps could block those villages off and uh also they got good intelligence their intelligence was so good in the villages and as i said that was a result of that intelligence th their intelligence was a result of their protection of the villages and their their good treatment of the people, taking nothing from them, treating them well, helping them get clean sources of water, helping them build bridges, farm their fields, things of this sort. So they got a lot of they got so much good intelligence from the people that they were considered by a number of the uh, intelligence agencies with uh, working during the war. They, a number of those agencies said that that was the greatest contribution of the caps in the war their ability to gain intelligence for the people, for these agencies. They were able to find some of the hidden infrastructure, uh, NLF infrastructure uh, members in the village. This is the, the shadow government the, of the uh, NLF, which is part mm -hmm. of revolutionary warfare. Mm -hmm. And they were able to set, find some of them. They were the people who were responsible for enforcing and NLF uh, rules in the village and for supplying the uh, guerrillas with making sure the supplies and the recruits and the intelligence got to the guerrillas, they were able to find some of these people and inhibit the uh, actions of a lot of the others of them. Again, they had civic action, economic development. One of their greatest economic development uh, accomplishments was that they simply kept the guerrillas away from the villages so they, the people could have that tax money they have, keep the food they had, Mm -hmm. uh, and be able to uh, live in relative peace and farm in relative peace. And they protected the local government as well. But they, 
the caps were meant to be an important part of that enclave pacification. And uh, uh, that was where their, their real value was. And uh, they were never really able to accomplish it to a great degree, partly because of uh, because General Westmoreland didn't approve of the program. Hmm. And uh, he wouldn't allow personnel slots to be allocated to the Marine Corps for the combined action platoons. Hmm. He said, uh, I, I think I have this quote pretty close. He said, uh, if you want to play around with this foolishness, you'll have to eat the spaces out of your, you'll have to eat the spa personnel spaces out of your own hide, which in effect meant that you're going to have to take them from the infantry unit. Hmm. Uh, he did not approve of the cap program. Uh, and then, and he didn't, it didn't approve of the pacification programs of the Marine Corps. And in, in November of 1965, he, he started giving the Marines missions to perform search and destroy missions in effect. And uh, he wouldn't allow them to work on the pacification to any great extent. But uh, I think, yeah, well, I guess to the point, I'm rambling, but the, uh, the combined action platoons were really very effective in the role they played in defending the villages and in pacifying the villages, but uh, they weren't allowed to realize their full potential because they were not given the resources to uh, expand within the enclaves to the extent they should have mm -hmm. to become very effective. They were meant really, and, and it was a shortcoming of the Marine Corps plan really, and the Marine Corps planning, although as, as I said, they weren't allowed to expand the caps, but they, they should have been in a contiguous pattern within the enclaves. Mm -hmm. they, right. they should have been adjacent to each other. And this was one of the, uh, points that Robert Thompson made about this concept of an enclave. He said that it, it was necessary within the enclave to have the caps located in villages adjacent to each other so that the guerrillas couldn't simply go between them or go around them and go to another village. It was yeah. this, this uh, adjacent pattern throughout the uh, enclave would really make a, an airtight, so to speak, area where the, the guerrillas couldn't uh, come in yeah don't don't leave seams that they could exploit um seams between the different uh, caps locations exactly. yeah was there a question um that you really wanted to get a, a an answer for and, and took a lot of work to reach a conclusion or you still would love to know the answer to some something some specific thing well i think it's not well the caps didn't didn't receive a lot of support during the war. And I think I can understand that, you know, the fog of war, so to speak, everyone had good ideas. No one quite knew which idea was really good and which one was just good and which was no good. Mm -hmm. So, and, and, uh, so the caps didn't really receive a lot of support, but they were, uh, Westmoreland was commander in Vietnam and, and he didn't like the cap program. So that was a, that was negative. That was a negative for the cap programs as well. I mean, there were a lot of there were there were a number of generals in the Marine Corps who really didn't like the idea, and a lot of officers who thought uh, they wanted to be had the war to be fought in a more conventional manner. Mm -hmm. uh, that's one question I would have. Why I didn't receive more support, but I think I have some pretty good answers for that. I mean, I can say it's a shame, but that's in retrospect. 
I, th I think it would have worked well. But one question I have is really, it relates to an individual more than that. It's a, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Corson mm -hmm. was uh, the commander of the program, and he wasn't really given command until February of 1967. As I mentioned, this was a man who was one of the foremost uh, insurgency experts in the in uh, in the Marine Corps. He had conducted this uh, Fong Bok experiment in which he discovered a, a few things he thought he'd he'd use in the CAP program. He organized the CAP program. Uh, he he even he developed a school in June of 1967. A school opened in in Da Nang for the training of of the uh, prospective CAP Marines. And so he gave a uniformity, and it was a two-week school. He gave a uniformity of training to the CAP program. He even did a lot of the interviewing of the individuals. He's very careful about this. And then later, he went on patrols with some of these CAPs to try to find out how they were doing. He was—he just seemed to be the right man in the right place at the right time. Now, that was in June of 1967 when the school was developed. And really, in July, the CAP program was set up as a separate command altogether. It, it no longer had that connection to the infantry infantry battalions I mentioned to you. He chose the the his his subcommanders of the uh, combined action groups, and he was very careful about this whole process. Now that was in July of 1967. In September of 1967, he left Vietnam and went back to the states. I would really like to know why he did that. Hmm. I mean, it seems. It seems as if this was the opportunity for, for him to self-actualize. Yeah, you know he could. He was. He said one of his one of his quotes, and I'll try to. And finally, we had a way to defeat a communist insurgency. That he, he, he was saying that regarding the caps. And I, I think he truly believed that. And I think he, he, he I think he did. Hmm. Uh, that is the caps in the villages defending the people, and and. Uh, and countering the uh, the propaganda and the uh, and 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 simply the uh, fighting of the uh, National Liberation Front, I think that uh, he did. But he left, uh, and uh, later he wrote a book called *The Betrayal*, mm. which was uh, a, a very critical of the war. He said he thought the war could be fought in a better manner, and one way he thought the war should be fought is to greatly expand the uh, combined action platoon program, but. And I read later that uh, he was concerned about his health. He had young children to raise, things of that sort. But hmm. it just seems to me that uh, I don't know if it's, it, it's a question of sorts I have, but uh, hmm. yeah. it, it really seems to be a shame. See, in this a question, I'd say this, too. There were three people I saw in the, in, in the history of the combined acts platoons who, who were really... Uh, altogether fascinating to me in one either in a positive or a negative manner one was Westmoreland another was uh, Victor Krulak and the other was Lieutenant Colonel Corson mm -hmm. Westmoreland may have been a very fine man in many respects but he was a failure as a general in, in, in the Vietnam War mm -hmm. Kru, the, Krulak was uh, a brilliant man and he had he had an idea for the Vietnam War uh, in his enclave strategy that I think was was excellent, but uh, he was very abrasive, very blunt, hmm. and uh, made enemies, I'm sure, as a result of that. Krulak, or rather, 
and the same, very much of the same was true for uh, uh, for Corson. He was, uh, he, I think, I've read you know he was a, he was a brilliant man, but he wasn't afraid to tell a lot of people that too. <laughs> <Got> <laughs> <it>. Yeah, <laughs> people might have thought he was the smartest man in the room, but he was he was ready to tell you before you you'd get an idea. Yeah. Uh. Did you have any difficulties getting this book finished or published? Well, getting it finished was, uh, I don't know, in many ways it was a labor of love. I really, I, I believed in it. As I said, uh, it started from the point where I was a, a confused and somewhat embittered 21-year-old uh, getting out of the Marine Corps. And uh, I've been trying to find answers for a long time. And uh, this was just another way for me to find answers, I think, to the to the problem and, and uh find out what happened there. I mean, a lot of people will say that, you know, the people uh, that, that we caused so much uh, pain, death, and hardship in Vietnam during the war, but this was an excellent idea. That is, uh, Enclave strategy with the uh, CAPS was an excellent idea, and if it had been pursued to a greater degree with, with, a, with a lot of support, I think it could have made a difference in the lives of a lot of Vietnamese, uh, those Vietnamese who didn't want to live under an authoritarian communist government. Mm -hmm. And there certainly were those people. The war itself, well, I, I start from the idea that uh, the war was there. You know, I, the war was there. I don't deal with why it was fought. We were fighting it. But then, too, as I said, there were a lot of people in South Vietnam who didn't want to live under a communist government. Mm -hmm. And uh, even even more after they'd experienced it for a period of time. So, uh, do, you, do you have any current writing projects? Not now. Uh, <laughs> as uh, as you might imagine, I'm uh, from what I've said. I, I'm, I'm interested in course and what's in a current course. Mm. I I'm not. I don't like biographies that much. I think, but if I could link it to some other other subject, link him to some other subject in some way. I might be interested in writing something else. I, I might be interested in writing something about him. Mm. Uh, he was uh, he was one of those rebels. When, you know, he, he he prided himself on that. One of his uh, heroes was Evans Carlson of Carlson's Raiders, who was a uh, a famous rebel within uh, a military rebel within the Marine Corps. Mm. Uh, he's a fascinating man, though. Mm -hmm. Is there anywhere <clears throat> do you have social media or website uh, where people can follow your your thoughts or work? No, I don't. Uh, they can email me certainly if they're interested. I'm uh, I'm retired, and uh, I'd be interested in hearing from anyone who might be might like to ask me about these things or discuss them. I'm currently I'm only I'm I'm thinking of putting together a uh, Vietnam War history course and uh, teaching that at some universities in the area. I I was an adjunct at uh, University of Akron, but uh, I'm not doing that now. Mm -hmm. Okay, I can, yeah, if you want, I can put your email address in the show notes for people to uh, check out if they want to contact you about the book. Yeah, that, that'd be fine. I'd be interested. Okay. What do you hope, at the end of the day, what do you hope this book will do for readers? I think we'll show them that the the CAP program was uh, an effective insurgency concept, but it was poorly used, and the, the potential of the CAP program was squandered as a result of that well that's all the questions i have do you have any do you have any parting thoughts or words 
I, I think I'd only repeat that, uh, well, the, the, the combined action program was within the context of the Vietnam War was a very, very good counterinsurgency concept. It was carefully thought out, it was carefully planned. It was tailored to work within the enclave strategy. It might work under other circumstances. That would have to be looked at carefully, but it did work very well. It protected a lot of the people of, uh, of South Vietnam from some of the worst excesses of the war. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'd, uh, I'd, I'd say, too, that uh, the people who served in these units could be proud of what they did. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's about it, really. Yeah, actually, it's interesting. I think a variation <clears throat> of this um, was attempted in both Iraq and Afghanistan. So I'm just curious if someone were to do a study of these caps versus sort of what what was tried um, in these modern wars, you know, just a contrast and comparison kind of thing. So that that's something that that what you've described makes me think so, think of or wonder about. Yeah, I I don't know that much about it to uh, comment on. I've read a little of what they tried to do with the caps in. Uh, I think they were doing it in Iraq for the most part. I don't know about Afghanistan, but again, I I. <laughs> I don't know much about it, but that's never kept me from offering my opinion on anything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, I don't think they were committed enough to it. I don't think it, they have to go in and 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 make a plan for what they're going to do, and uh, it has to be as, at least as careful as they were doing it in in uh, Vietnam with a uh, a school with proper tre- preparation and and training and cultural training. Mm. That's one other thing I think. Uh, a uh, a study of the uh, a cultural study possibly of uh, the cap program would be valuable you're looking at it, this was a situation in which uh people from two very different cultures were brought together mm-hmm. and and how they interacted and how it worked it's really mm-hmm. pretty fascinating yeah yeah i agree i agree all right well um thank you for taking the time to speak with me well thanks for having me chris i really enjoyed it In the next episode, I speak with Sir Max Hastings about his new book on Operation Pedestal, a World War II convoy operation to Malta. Bullseye, the subscribe button to catch that episode. Thank you for listening to Military History Inside Out. If you want more interviews with military historians or daily history book suggestions, check out warscholar.org and follow me at Warscholar on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter at Chris Alvarez War Scholar on Instagram, and my podcast, Military History Inside Out. If you want interviews with writers and creative people or daily fiction suggestions, including sci-fi, fantasy, horror, film history, gaming, and more, sign up for my newsletter at fullcontactnerd.com and follow me on Chris Alvarez Full Contact Nerd on YouTube, Chris Alvarez FCN on Facebook and Twitter, Chris Alvarez Sci-Fi on Instagram, and my podcast, Full Contact Nerd Interviews. If you want interviews with space scientists, space historians, and technology experts, or daily space and science book suggestions, check out technologyandspace.com, and follow me at Spacewalks Money Talks on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, SpacewalksMT on Twitter, and my podcast, Technology and Space. Thanks for listening, and I hope to see you again soon.